Um, hey, it's, it's awesome to be back with, with you guys um, tonight. Um, we have an action-packed evening. There's a, as, you, as you know, there's a lot uh, in, in the chapter uh, tonight that we, that we read. Um, and when I started to think about, you know, what is, what is this section really about? Uh, you know, the images that came to mind for me are, these are defining moments for a people. They're defining moments for individuals, but for this entire community. And really they're defining moments for all of us uh, as the church, as, as God's chosen people. And so I think there's, there should be this deep resonance with the stories that we're gonna cover tonight and look at because they're not just ancient history, they're actually our history. They're actually tied to, to your story and how you got to be sitting in this room tonight. But you know, uh, each of us has our own origin stories and I think particularly about families and origin stories of families are fascinating and to me. And so uh, I just want to share a couple of stories from, from the Smith origin um, story that you might not know. Um, so I know this is hard to believe, but I actually never had a girlfriend in high school. It's true, <laughs> didn't. Um, yeah, I had no sisters and really didn't know how to relate to the opposite sex that well. Um, and then I went to an almost all male college. Um, so that was, that was winning. Um, and, and I came home, uh, I came home, I was 19 years old and I, I, I come home from school and come back to my home church. Uh, and we were, I think, having an evening service or study of, of some kind. And uh, I, I didn't know it, but the origin story of the Smith family was about to, about to happen um, in, that, in that gymnasium. And uh, from across the room, I, I saw a girl that I, I recognized and much to my delight, she saw me and, and looked back and remembered who I was. And, uh, and so she, she came up to me and uh, we started a, a conversation about nothing. And uh, at the end of it, because I was so cool, I pointed my fingers and I said, let's do lunch. <laughs> True story. And uh, if, you're, if you're in the dating scene, please don't, don't copy any of my, you know. Um, and so the best part was, is I actually didn't call her to have lunch and I went back to school. Yeah, I, I went back to school because I was that smart. And, and so I, can't, I come back, that was in the summer, I come back at Christmas time and come back to the same gym almost the same spot, back right corner, and uh, same girl sees me. This time she looks a little agitated <laughs> in a playful way. And she says, hey, you never called me. And I don't, all I can tell you is something had changed. Um, and I didn't know this, but in between the first let's do lunch and the second you never called me, that young lady had started following Jesus. And when I saw her, I saw somebody different and I was immediately drawn to her. And that young lady is my wife, uh, Janet. <laughs> and so that's, that's the origins of, of uh, the Smith story. And um, we went on a date to Chinese food and a bad movie, I think a John Travolta movie. And then, the, and then I never had another girlfriend. So that's it. Um, and so I think origin stories are really important. And I don't know what your 
uh, origin stories are of, of some of the important things in, in your life, maybe some of the important relationships, but I think they define us, right? Like how we came to be a people is really important. And I think when we think about Exodus, think about it in those terms, you know, not just an ancient book that, you know, tells us about religious things, but it's an origin story of our family and how it all began. And so it tells us something deeply important about who we are as well. And um, we can go to the next slide, Michaela. And so there's a, there's a lot we could talk about and we can't, we can't talk about everything that was in the reading. It's just, it's, it's so much. Um, I wish we could. That was the hardest part of preparing was like, oh my gosh, I wanna talk about this and that. And so we can only narrow it down to a few things that, that we're gonna get through tonight. And if you remember last time I taught, I, this is just the way I think. I think like in pictures and read like things are a movie. And so I, I just wanna invite you uh, to do the same tonight as you think about uh, this text and these stories, think about it in visuals. And remember, these were all, you know, oral traditions first that they got told and then got written down and then got told and then got passed down. And I think that's some, the original hearers probably thought about it that way too. Like they, they heard it and memorized it and imagined it, right? Not just studied it as an academic pursuit, but it, but it awakened their imaginations um, in, in really provocative ways. And so we're gonna cover uh, sort of four um, scenes. Uh, I call it the prequel, the Hebrew threat, my titles. Um, scene one, the old man refired. Scene two, the confrontation. Scene three, the mountain meeting. And obviously there, we're gonna kind of fly over a lot of important things that I hope if you, you know, didn't take the time to read, you'll, this will whet your appetite and you'll get right back into it and be excited. Um, next slide, Michaela. So first thing is we're gonna talk about the, the, the prequel. So kind of like, how did we, how did we get here? And if you remember the story that, that we covered last week, um, you know, God makes this uh, covenant prov promise with Abraham and, um, and then he has a son, Isaac, and then he has a son, Jacob. And then we, we learn the story of Joseph, which was tragic, um, that get, kind of gets this small family all the way to this foreign land in, in Egypt. Um, and we're told that in, in Egypt, um, it was like 70 people kind of where we left last week, which is, you know, less than about half of this room is kind of the people that, that were there when we left that story. Uh, but then we find out in Exodus chapter one, um, and I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna read these first 10 verses. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt because he got sold there and then found favor, if you remember the story. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And when you hear that, and this is just kind of like a, a teaching note as you're reading the scriptures, we wanna keep paying attention to two things. One, when we see repeated language that we're like, wait, that sounds familiar. Where have I read that before? It's really important trust your gut on that and go, hey, let's go back and look at that. And the second is images. Like if you see images that 
Boy, that looks like something that I've seen before. Pay attention to that and go back. And those two tools I find to be the most helpful ways of connecting the story together. Pay attention to repeated words and repeated images. And so when we look at that last verse, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. What does that either remind you of visually or linguistically? The garden, right? It was the garden. It was the creation mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply. This, is, this was God's plan and God's design. And so at this point in the story, we're supposed to be remembering that, that this is, oh yeah, this is tied back to the garden. This is tied back to a plan that God initiated. Even though it's, it's gone awry already in this short time, uh, the promises are still there. So we find that the people of Israel are growing and they're increasing, and, but they're foreigners in, in this land. And so the response from the Egyptians is not favorable. And we learn that in the next verse. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Um, and so we learn that basically this immigrant population begins to be oppressed. And so this is the prequel. This is how um, we, we get to the story of, of Moses. This is Moses' origin story. This is the kind of the world that he's born into. He's a, a foreigner in a minority culture that's being oppressed. And then if you remember, the crazy story of Moses is that all the, the, the young uh, sons of the Israelite people are being killed. And so his, his mother takes him and puts him in a basket. And then somehow, miraculously, it makes it to who? Pharaoh's daughter. Like, what? This is crazy. Um, and so he ends up being raised um, in, in Egypt as an Egyptian prince. And isn't it just like God, like, to weave together this crazy story? Um, and why does, why does God need Moses to be an Egyptian prince? What are some of the things we know later that happen? Gives him entry into the court. Entry into the court, yeah. He has, like, how in the world does this old guy living in the wilderness know how to get to the most powerful man in the world? Because he was the prince, yeah. What else? He knew the language. He knew the language. Great insight, yeah. What else? They would listen. They would listen, yeah. He kind of had some kind of credibility. What else? What skills do you, do you think he might have picked up as a uh, leadership skills? Rhetoric. Rhetoric. What's that? Diplomacy. Diplomacy. History. History. Cultural, background. Cultural background. Like this is not, this is underneath the text, right? But it's really important. Like, so all this, God poured into Moses, this immigrant slave that gets put in a basket, gets sent down the river, right? And his mom does it in faith, but God knows. God knows that he needs to pour all this stuff into him because he's got a plan, not just for Moses, but for his people. And uh, so we, we, we learn um, this story that um, the Hebrews are actually a threat um, to the Egyptians and, and so they make this plan, but God has a different plan. Um, so what happens to Moses? Um, and we won't go through the entire story of Moses, 
But we've learned that the first 40 years of Moses' life, he lives as an Egyptian prince. And then what happens in the end though? Like how does his princedom end? He has to leave, but why does he have to leave? He kills a guy, right? he commits a felony, yeah. He's 40 years old. Um, he see, like he's kind of grabbing onto his cultural story, I guess, and gets angry that his people are being oppressed. And so he kills a guy and he flees and he goes into the wilderness and he's, he's 40 years old. Um, and so um, what happens in the interim, and we're gonna go to the next slide. So this is Moses' small story. He's on the run. Seemingly, he's a failure. Um, but we learn that God has a different plan. And Exodus 2, 23 through 24 says this. Um, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And what was his covenant? What, what, it, what did his covenant say? Yeah, I'm gonna bless you. You're gonna have a people. You're gonna have a land. Okay, and so once again, though, we find ourselves in a weird place in the story. If, if Moses is God's man, um, he's now a 40-year-old dude, midlife crisis, on the run, you know, a felon in the wilderness. He, he gets married and he starts tending his father-in-law's sheep. But we learn that meanwhile, while that's happening, this is happening um, to the Hebrew story. And so there's these parallel stories that are always running along with each other. And this is gonna be such key language is God remembers his covenant. Now, does God forget? No, God doesn't forget. So why do you think this is in the text this way that it's stated to the people and to us that God remembered? Why highlight this? Because this is an important verse. Now he's gonna act. Yeah. It was kind of dormant a little bit. It was dormant, yeah. Cuz you're like a long time has passed. What's going on? Yeah. Well, and the people forgot. And the people forgot. What he asked the people to do. Exactly. So once again, and this is why this is so important is we see God fulfilling the covenant. Right? Is that the people are forgetful. And that's basically the story of the Old Testament is that we are forgetful people. Like if you had to summarize like Israel and the Old Testament in one sentence, that's it. And the people forgot. <laughs> but God didn't forget. God, God remembered and he held up his end of the, of the bargain. So we know that something great is about to happen. And so that takes us to scene one. We can go to the next slide. And um, I call this the, the old man refired because now... 40 more years have passed. And I always think this is a crazy part in the story that now Moses is 80 years old, 80 years old. And this, this isn't a phase in the Bible where people are like living to be 900. Madeline and I had this discussion the other day at Starbucks where like, can you imagine being 900? You get to 800, you're like, dang, another hundred years. That's a, that's a, that's like a long time, you know? But so he's, so he's 80, he's an old guy. Uh, his profession is not going too well. Um, it says he's tending his father-in-law's herds as an 80-year-old guy. He's out in the wilderness. He's got no credibility. He's got no wealth. And I always think when I read this story, like Moses, probably in his mind, is like, my life is over. Like, I, you know, I had my shot and, I'm, and I messed it up. And I think just, just a real brief pastoral moment in the church, our, our culture, right, 
um, values youth, right? And doesn't, doesn't know to do with, what to do with age and experience. And I just wanna say in a pastoral moment, like that is not the way God thinks, right? Because God's never done with you, right? God's greatest moment for you in your story and the way he wants you to participate in the life of his kingdom might yet be to, to be realized, right? Because as Christians, um, our best day is always yet to come, right? And so having that orientation is super important and um, whole different discussions. Why don't, you know, I say he refired. So he wasn't like taking it easy. God's about to invite Moses into something amazing. So that takes us to the text in Exodus chapter three. This is one of my favorite stories in, in all the Bible. And um, I just, I want us to read this um, aloud. And so um, I'm gonna read it kind of slowly. And I just want you to just, just take in this story and, and don't hear this in a way of like, I gotta hurry and take notes and be academic and get all the right answers in the book or I need to listen to this so that I can teach it to somebody else. I just want you to invite you to hear it and to see it as a story that's playing out. And in your mind's eye, what images do you see? Um, imagine being Moses, what do you feel? What do you sense? right? It should be a, like a full body sensory experience as you hear this. So remember, 80 years old, he thinks his life is, is over. God has heard the groaning of Israel. He's remembered his covenant. That's the verse right before this. And now flash to scene two. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And the scene kind of um, continues to go on um, from there. So when you listen to that, what do you imagine Moses feeling in that moment? 
fear. Rightly so, right? You meet God on a walk. Fear. What else? Inadequate. Inadequate. Absolute inadequacy. And that's his first words, right? Who am I? Appropriate? Absolutely. Right? Because in the world's standards, it's true. He's an old guy who's failed, and what does he have? Nothing. But God calls him anyway. This is a beautiful story, and we're going we're gonna to come back to it, but I, I want you to keep it in your mind's eye because we're going to revisit it later. It's an important tie-in, actually, to, the, to our story and to the story of Jesus later. So just kind of keep that um, in your mind as we kind of continue to march through the text here. And I love this painting, by the way. I found some Jewish artists. Um, I love art because I think art tells us truth at a slant sometimes. And so I love, you know, this is, um, you know, a picture of this artist's rendering of, of the burning bush. And we don't know exactly what the burning bush looked like, except that, you know, it says he turned because it like was something odd. There's a bush that's on fire that apparently bushes would burn all the time out in the wilderness because it'd just be dry and they would catch fire. But this one burned and never went out. And so that, it just kind of kept burning. And then of course, when it started talking, that's when things got, <laughs> that, that's when things got epic in the story for a second. Um, okay, scene two, um, we're gonna go to the confrontation. So if we look at Exodus 12, um, what, what we see is, is the plagues that happen in Egypt. So we know the story from here is that, you know, Moses, uh, eventually God convinces him that he's going to be with him. He gets enough courage and he actually goes, goes to Pharaoh and he goes to Pharaoh and he performs signs. What's the first sign that he performs? You remember the staff and it turns into a snake. And then how does the Pharaoh's people, how do they respond? We can do that too, right? And a lot of commentators think they were just magicians. So, you know, I'm not sure that there was like dark magic happening or whatever. I think they were just like, you know, they could hide a snake in a bag or something and make it disappear. But then what does God's snake do to their snake? He eats it. And that's the point where like, they're like, okay, we can't do that. <laughs> like that, that, we didn't learn that at the David Copperfield School of Magic. Um, but he does, he, so he goes and he does these signs. Um, and so kind of the, the important verse that we need to look at at the beginning of this confrontation is actually in chapter seven. So if you look at uh, Exodus seven seventeen, we read, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And that language continues to be repeated. So what's the purpose of all these plagues? 717, right? By this, you'll know that I am the Lord. So he's doing it to show who he is. And what do we learn about who God is in these plagues? Just overall. Say that again. Powerful. powerful. Yeah, we learn he's powerful. What else? Sovereign. Sovereign. He's above the gods of the Egyptians. Above the Absolutely. Yeah, because what do the Egyptians worship? The sun. The Nile. The Nile is actually a god. Did you know that? In the Egyptian world, the Nile was a god. Um, and that's actually an important um, piece because what's the first 
uh, real plague that comes as he turns the Nile red and makes it like all the fish die and makes it undrinkable, right? And so the very first one, he's, it's an affront to their main God, right? It's not just like creating havoc or environmental problems, though it's doing that too, but it's really saying, hey, that God you have, like I'm, I'm so far over that God in an instant, um, I'll take it down. And so most of the plagues have something to do with um, being in a front uh, against uh, one, of the, one of the gods. And with the plagues, uh, what we wanna pay attention to here is that they increase in intensity, um, they increase in visibility. And so, you know, the snake thing, that happens at first in just a private court, right? The next one happens to everyone, right? Everyone who uses the river, right? And then the frogs come and the frogs actually, this is probably the first time that the Pharaoh personally is assaulted because the frogs are everywhere, probably even in Pharaoh's bed and his house or whatever. Um, and so they increase in, in intensity and in visibility, and then finally in lethality. And that's an important kind of trajectory that they get worse and worse and worse and worse. Well, why is that? Um, because there's another dynamic at play that's important to pay, pay attention to that, sh that shows up over and over and over again in the text. And that's the dynamic of Pharaoh's heart. How is Pharaoh's heart described? Hardened. hardened. And why is Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because God hardened it. And that's an interesting theological conversation we can have sometime, but not tonight. Um, but yeah, so Pharaoh's heart is hardened and it actually gets harder and harder and harder. Um, the other thing that happens is as these plagues are happening, they're not just happening to Pharaoh, they're happening to the entire culture, right? And remember, Egypt is the most powerful nation in, in history at the time this is happening. So this is like a superpower. And, you know, the Pharaoh, he's the most powerful man on earth, all right? So this isn't some backwater place. This is like the biggest city. This is like Washington, D.C., like this stuff is happening to the United States of America, right? And so the entire culture is being affected. So politically, what do you think is happening within Egypt as these plagues go on and on and on and on? And it becomes obvious that the Israelites, right, they're being protected because that's the other thing that as they go on, right, is that, wait a second, we're all going down this, the immigrant population, they're not being touched. And Pharaoh, he's getting more and more and more obstinate. Politically, what's the dynamic? He's losing his grip on power. Yeah. So there becomes like dissension actually politically in the country. And that's, that's an important thing because uh, verse 11.6, if you look at um, Exodus 11.6, yes, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Um, and why this is important is that's, that's a tie back to uh, Exodus 3, 7, which Exodus 3, 7 was who was crying out at the beginning of the story? The Israelites were crying out. So right in this kind of small part of text, we have the Israelites crying out. Now we have the Egyptians crying out. And why? Because God's brought his power and he's revealed who he is. Um, and so the Egyptians are feeling kind of the, the weight of this. And so eventually, and, and this is where I um, just want to spend uh, a few minutes because it's a really important um, passage in Exodus chapter 12. 
Um, we have, and go to the next slide. So we have the 10th plague. And what was the 10th plague? Yeah. The, the, yeah, the death of the firstborn, right, that, that happens. Um, and so, again, this is effect, it says this affects everyone from the Pharaoh down to the poorest person in the society. Like, and, and when does it happen? It happens in the middle of the night. So you imagine the scene, you know, that in the most powerful nation on earth, um, most secure nation on earth at night, someone in every home dies and they wake up to this, to this wailing that, that happens. Now, how did God protect Israel from this last plague? Yeah, the blood. And, and so this is a really important, um, I call it an interlude that happens in the text. And so, cause you have all these scenes happening, all this action happening. And then all of a sudden you have um, chapter 12 happen. And basically chapter 12 um, is the in initiation of the Passover. And this is why, why take so much time in, in the middle of this crazy story of the Exodus and all of a sudden you're describing how to have a really complicate, complicated dinner. That's basically what it is. Why is that? It's a way that they remember. Because you remember, God remembers, the people forget. And so God's gonna give an important way to remember something that's gonna be uh, one of the key stories in, in their origin story. Um, and one that we know is ultimately gonna point to, to Jesus. Um, so uh, what I wanna do uh, really quick is just at your tables, I want you to talk about uh, the Passover. And if you don't remember it, you can look in, in chapter 12. Um, and I want you to look and see First of all, what images do you see God telling the people to do in that complicated dinner? And then in what ways does that point to uh, Jesus uh, when he eventually comes? Any questions about the question? Okay, just take a few minutes and talk about that. Okay. What are... Um, Hey guys, we're gonna we're, we're gonna press on, um, but I want to hear I want to hear some of your answers. What what things did you see in that in that meal that drew your attention? Bitter herbs. I didn't know if that was for the group, but we did hear bitter herbs. What else did you see? Cook it whole. Yeah. Why, why, why do that? What is the symbolism, do you think? We came to the conclusion that it was just hurry up. You don't the, have time to prepare all this. Just hurry up. That is a big feature in everything that's happening. It's you don't have time, right? We don't leaven the bread. We don't really butcher. We, we actually cook it outside. So you're not even, you don't have to do the dishes, right? <laughs> yeah, so we're in a hurry. I won't name names. Somebody yeah. take I like it. The first fast food. You thought God's first fast food restaurant was Chick-fil-A. You were wrong. That's it. Yeah. What else did you see? A holy assembly. Yes. Yeah, so community is actually a really important point here. You know, even the timing of this, this happened in the 14th day of a 28 day lunar cycle, which guess what happens at that point in the lunar cycle? A full moon. 
And so you have like almost 100% illumination at night. Why? Beca to facilitate the gathering of people, right? So it's amazing how God thinks through even these tiny details, right? That are going to be repeated at the same time every single year until Christ comes, right? Pretty fascinating. So we see, probably, I know there was a ton of stuff that you guys saw and, and talked about in there, but here's the deal. I think it's really important to pay attention that this was a very visceral experience for them. It was very specific. It was very visceral. If, if you really immerse yourself in the text, it's like you can see things and you can smell things and you can taste things, right? And there's a way that you sit and there was a way that you dressed, right? And if you transport yourself to that moment, it gets even crazier when you think about they, how long had the Israelites been in Egypt in that place? 430 years. How long has our country been a country? Not 430 years, right? I mean, just put it in perspective because we go like, God never would disrupt our way of life, you know, or whatever. And here they are 430 years into this thing. And that really gives some perspective. And then God's like, tonight, after hundreds and hundreds of years and in generation after generation after generation of oppression, right? But tonight, I'm coming for you. How hard would that be to believe? Be tough. Be tough to believe. But I think that's why God makes it so real. He's like, you know, get up, get dressed. It's nighttime and do this thing, you know, and I'm coming. Now, the key, a key part that I'm sure you noticed is they slaughter the animal and they put the blood on the, on the door. Whose benefit was that for? Does God need to know a sign? Like, I can't remember who's mine and who's not. And I need you guys to make some marks on the wall. No. Fa fa Pharaoh, that's a, I hadn't thought about that, but that's actually, yeah. Because all the other people's houses right. Right. And to Never thought about that. But after the fact, right, after as 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 they flee, probably they go looking around and go, holy cow, this is weird thing. Yeah, I think that's a really cool insight. And I think it was also for the benefit of the Israelites, you know, is that they saw it and they know. And of course, we know there's deep theological significance that ties all the way forward to Christ. Right. All this is 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 a messi messianic image. It's pointing the way to how God's ultimately going to uh, really fulfill the terms of, of the covenant. Um, hey, just real briefly, next, next slide. I just want to talk for a second about time. I'm pretty fascinated with time. I think there's not a lot of, of people that talk about time enough, but I think time in theology is a really fascinating concept because there's two ways to think about time. The first way is linear is that we think of time in a line, right? And that's the correct way to think about like redemptive history. That's the way we're looking at, you know, God's story is in time that like, you know, there was a point in time that God initiated the world and there'll be a point in time where he returns and comes back. And so a linear way of viewing things is correct. And that's mostly the way we think about time. If you pop open your calendar, it's in lines, right? But the other way that we don't often think about time in Western culture that's also super important to understand what's happening in the story is time is also a circle. And time is a circle in rhythms that repeat themselves. Now, which rhythms of time repeat themselves? Seasons. 
What else? Generations. Yeah, even generations. Agriculture. Agriculture, that's a big one, right? Agriculture, if you're in agricultural cycles, right? Huh? Yeah, that's, I love it. Super abstract, you're my kid. That's great. Um, but also like weeks, right? A week is actually a circle. Uh, a day is actually a circle. It repeats itself over and over and over. And I think why this is important, I just put this up there as a cool diagram, is, you know, uh, the Hebrews lived in an agricultural environment. And so God initiates this ritual of the Passover and he places it in circular time that's going to repeat itself over and over and over again. It's going to happen at the same time during the year in the same agricultural cycle. And so all their life and all of their commerce and all of their vocation, right, is, is going to actually start with the Passover. Because remember, he says, this is the beginning of your year. So that's a feature that's often not talked about in this passage. It says, God says, I'm going to reorient time, right? I don't know what their view of the calendar was before this, but it was probably Egyptian and it was probably like based on their gods or whatever. So one of the first things he does before he launches them is he gives them a new orientation to time. And I just think that's so interesting um, to, to think about that. And I wonder, like, I think that that's a kind of a discipleship thing maybe to think about is, you know, how do we think about time? And how do we think about um, remembering God in seasons of, of time? So anyway, end of my time public service announcement. Um, next slide. Okay, what we're going to end with is the mountain meeting, which is super important. We're not going to have time to cover, you know, the, the entire thing. Um, but the mountain moment is Sinai. Now, what I think is really cool about this is God brings Moses, right? How does he say, and remember in Exodus 3, how does he tell Moses that, um, you know, this, this is the way that you know that I'm making this covenant, with me. You'll come back to this mountain and you'll worship me, right? So go do this crazy thing that's incredibly scary to you, but I'm promising you, you're going to actually come back here, right? And he does. And so the place where Moses meets God in the burning bush is the same place that uh, Israel winds up. I love this is another um, Hebrew artist rendition of the meeting at Sinai, kind of with the multitudes of people and the fiery mountain. There's some really amazing imagery that, that we see um, in, in uh, this text. And so I just want to set the stage real quick in chapter 19, verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 6 says, um, this is right when Israel says on the third new moon. So again, navigating um, by the stars and and um, seasons um, by the lunar cycles. Um, the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They came into the wilderness at Sinai. And then um, verse six says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's really important language that the reason, God's reason for calling people out, right, isn't just because he felt sorry for them. It's because he has a purpose for them. Um, and he's got a purpose for you and me too. Um, and he's about to give them words to live by. And so he's going to give them a covenant um, that's going to happen. And he first gives a law, which he gives the law called the Ten Commandments, right? And just a couple of notes on the Ten Commandments. Um, when, Jesus, when, when Jesus is asked to, to um, sum up all the law and the prophets, how did, what does he say? 
love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Which actually comes from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.16. Um, and those are the two like foundational commandments, love God, love neighbor, right? Um, and then we get these 10 commandments that are in kind of two parts. The first four are vertical, right? Which mean they relate to how we relate to God. We'll have no other gods before you, no idols. And then the, the last six are horizontal, how we relate to, to people. And, and why does God give these commandments? Because of 19.6, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're going to be the way that I actually fulfill my work in the world. And to do that, I need you to be a certain way, right? And so I'm going to give you these laws. But what's the second reason and the most important reason he gives laws? It's to tell them who he is, right? Because God never asks us to be something that he's already not, right? And that goes back to this idea of being an image bearer. Um, so what we need to know is that God gives these laws and that then um, he makes this covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. That's the most important covenant that we need to understand from the Old Testament. Um, and, um, and, and it's structured in kind of an ancient way that people would have, would have readily understood. Um, and from this place, God, and it's unbelievable like imagery that God comes down and he meets with the people. And how are the people, how do they respond to him when he comes down? Fear, right? Fear and trembling. They're like, don't, God, Moses, don't let God speak to us. Like, you go. And then, and so, so Moses becomes this mediator of this covenant relationship with God. And, and that's an important concept because who's the mediator of the new, new covenant? Jesus, absolutely. Hey, the last thing I want to do is actually, because I, I just don't want to run out of time for this, go to the next slide, please. So this is, um, I remember like being in an Old Testament class one time in seminary and reading Exodus and uh, stumbling into this, this concept that Exodus chapter three, okay, where God uh, meets Moses in the burning bush scenario is actually tied pretty tightly to Matthew 28, um, at, the, at the end of uh, Matthew 28, at uh, the Great Commission text. And so what I want to invite us to do now in our groups is, is look at those two texts. You don't have to read every line. Just get the general vision of what's happening. And I want you to find similarities. What do you find similar between God's encounter of Moses in the burning bush and Jesus and the disciples at the moment of, of the Great Commission? which is, I think, um, 28, verse 19, starting in 19. Any questions on that? All right, let's take, let's take about the next 10 minutes and see what you can identify that's the same between those two texts. All right, guys, um, some, some good discussion. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to end this way because remember what we're, what we're doing here is um, in this whole class, right, is, is we're connecting God's story as one story, right? That it's one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we see these ties all the way through and we see this imagery all the way through. And I think it's important at major origin story moments, like, like we talked about, at moments where we're like, hey, this is where the family started, or hey, this is, this is a big moment where God revealed something about himself to his people, which meant it was a moment he's revealing himself to us in a way, right? And so um, 
what I, I don't know what you drew out of that, but you know, just to kind of, um, I know as a way of closing, you know, I just think that there's so much power in the visual of, of Moses, right? Being called to a mountain, God meeting him there, God inviting him to mission, right? Because what's God's mission? To redeem all the world, right? And Moses's response, which is fear, right? Uncertainty, doubt, and God's response, I'll be with you, right? I'm gonna go before you. Um, I'm gonna be the one that, that does this. And if you fast forward to Matthew 28, it's fascinating because if, if you think about, and I don't often think about him this way, I don't know why, I guess it's just hard for our brain to imagine, but Jesus is God, right? Fully God, fully man. And he's in his resurrected body. And he, where is he? On a mountain. Same God on a piece of high ground, gathering people and doing what? Inviting them to mission. And their response, I love it, says some believed, some doubted. I imagine a great deal of fear captured their imaginations at that moment. But God's Jesus saying the same as he said to Moses, right? Um, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you, right? Because I'm all powerful and this is my mission. And, and so I think when we read those two stories together, for me anyway, it ties so much of the Old Testament text to my story because I deeply resonate with, you know, the teaching in Matthew 28 of like, that's for us. Like Chris is always teaching us, you know, that's our mission, that's our God, right? And that was our God on that mountain too, um, revealing himself. So I hope your imagination is awakened as you think through these origin stories um, and that maybe you start to connect those um, in a meaning, meaningful way in your journey as well. Um, it's been an awesome evening with you guys. Um, let, me, let me pray for us and we can head out to start the last part of our week. Lord, um, just thank you that you are an amazing God. Um, we thank you that while we are yet still sinners, Lord, you're for us somehow. Lord, we thank you that while we were forgetful, you remembered. Lord, we thank you that you haven't given up on, on your mission. You haven't given up on us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of being invited into your mission to be your disciples not just to enjoy the benefits of, of that relationship, but to participate with you as co-laborers in your mission, the greatest rescue mission of all time. The, the, the rescue mission in Exodus pales in comparison to the one that you're undertaking right now in our time. And so Lord, we thank you for that great privilege. And I pray for each of my brothers and sisters in this room that, um, that Lord, you would just awaken each of our imaginations um, to who you are and to what you're doing and to who you say that we are and that we might live um, out of that sense of identity in you as we move out of this place this week. And we pray all these things in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen.